Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. Today, Cody is here, as usual, to keep me on track, to keep me sane, to walk me through the topics. Cody, Cody how you doing? How's, that, how's the week been? Something I thought of from last episode, at the end of the podcast, you were like, you know what, let's talk about something not basketball related for three minutes. And I like interrupted you with some Jalen Brunson excitement, and I'm like, huh, the people might think I'm like robotic and not have a life outside of basketball, which... Is fine. So I'll answer that question now. Um, a couple weeks ago, I bought a Nintendo Switch, right? And I have to say, I feel like I've been missing something. I feel like I've discovered this thing. I feel like I want to go and like share with the people of like everyone. This Nintendo Switch thing is pretty cool, but I'm like five years, four years behind the times right now. But I don't care. I'm having a blast with it. So did you grow up playing Nintendo, or is this just like a new foray into console gaming? So like. I would say a decade ago, I was more of a gamer. I really haven't been much of a gamer for about 10 years or so now. Um, I always dabbled with a couple of things, but, you know, <laughs> Minnesota winters are just terrible. This COVID thing is never going away. I'm like, I need more things that I can do to just, like, entertain myself for half an hour segments at home. So you feel like you were catching up on things missed by getting in. I mean, it's late, but, switch. you know, the Switch thing, the Switch fad. That's kind of been your week. Yeah, I, I won't even say it's my week. It's just been like, I think about it. I'm like, wow, this is just such a cool technological like device. It's so much different and so much more innovative than other consoles. Like, how has no one been talking about this? But like, it, it's just I'm the one that's behind. Everyone's been talking about it. I missed the discourse. So that you you missed out on that. I've been thinking about things that I missed out on from a slightly different perspective, from a basketball perspective. And I've just been thinking about the Atlanta Hawks a lot lately. Mm. And and they were in the Eastern Conference Finals last year. I thought they were primed to have a similar kind of season, even with a little more growth, because their roster was relatively young. Uh, of course, the core with Trey and some of the other guys they have are pretty young. And then instead, it's been a struggle. And if you look at a lot of their advanced numbers, their offense is still great. They're still like a solid team that can compete a lot of nights. Uh, wouldn't be surprised if they finished around 500, that kind of thing. But to me, Cody, that's a, that's a far cry from 50, 54 wins, something, you know, cranking it out at the top of the conference. Things like you're really tough to beat in your home building. That's not what the Hawks are right now. And I love to take an inventory of things that I really get wrong. I feel like that's the best way to learn and grow. And that's the one that's kind of sticking in my craw this year is how, how the Hawks looked going into the season, the way I was thinking about that roster. I alluded to it on an episode uh, a while back where a, a while back, like maybe last week, um, my sense of time is completely shot. It was the Nintendo switch just came out like a month ago. Don't worry. Yeah. That's how out, I feel. So I yeah, get it right before COVID is when it came out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, so with the Hawks, I think the lesson, as I've said, has to do with the defense. And I think we undervalue sometimes as a community how much defense is a team-driven thing, a philosophy thing, a buy-in thing, a coaching thing. And the one I'll add that I mentioned in that show recently was a, a bubble, kind of no-fans environment thing. We talk about shooting backdrops with the fans in the gyms versus the empty arenas that had different sight lines. I think another thing, Cody, is the energy and the energy of the game and how it probably changes your adrenaline and intensity a little bit and how maybe that was harder to carry over night to night in empty arenas last year. And this year, it's something that is a different beast for teams but not every team can all of a sudden stay afloat defensively. And I'm wondering if that's what's happening with Atlanta, where I mean, we can get into why it's falling apart specifically with coaching and specific players. 
but I just I'm thinking now last year they probably just weren't also weren't a very good defensive team but they were able to sort of stay afloat and sneak through the COVID cracks if you will I'm glad you're positing all of these as a bunch of questions because I think the Hawks are really interesting because last year they were basically two teams as well right we had the pre Nate McMillan coaching Hawks and then after Nate McMillan took over they went on a run I don't remember exactly what the numbers looked like after he took over in the regular season but you know they were cruising through the uh, Eastern Conference playoffs Trey Young really established himself in that Knicks series and I do think the idea was like okay Trey Young made a leap he might make another leap. All these other guys are going to gel together another year. Uh, they're going to be another year older, and they're going to come to it. But if I remember correctly, I think at the beginning of the season, Trey Young was even making comments like, ah, I'm not even feeling the regular season. I'm just, I'm kind of bored with it. I just want the playoffs. And I don't necessarily know if that's the mentality you want to have. It seems to be like uh, anti antithetical to like how the Suns are taking the season, who they like, they made it to the finals. They got so close. They came in this season. They're still kind of just humming as that sort of machine. And that machine seems to be breaking down a little bit in Atlanta. And I don't know. What, what are some of the things that you're noticing that you think might be contributing to this? Well, we were looking at some of the, I uh, just talking about some of the footage from the first half against the heat the other night and like multiple breakdowns to start the game. Uh, I, when I see stuff like that and you look at the plays, I'm seeing a, like basically a lack of communication between key players where somebody's got to help. And then when one possession, no one will help. And then the next possession, you'll have two guys help in the same spot, right? You don't need that. You don't need three players going to the ball on a cut, the two guys helping and one chasing. Um, some of it might also be engagement. Like, you know, Capella is... I don't know if he's at the exact same place I would think of his peak defense as. Lou Williams is out there. He's a year older. He's always been a defensive issue. You put him out there. Then you have Trey. Um, I don't think any of this is a disaster, but I think when you have a team that's not communicating, not engaged, maybe the defensive coaching isn't as buttoned up or bought in or emphasized as it maybe could be or needs to be with this team. It's still a young team. These are the things I'm seeing. Hunter is supposed to be kind of uh, uh, not a panacea, but someone who helps quite a bit with them defensively. And in teams like this, he's got to be really good off ball, right? It's, it's one thing to lock in and be good on ball when you have a team like this, but he's still having instances. There are at least one or two plays in the first half against the Heat that we alluded to where it's like you can't just stand there and not tag anybody, but also be 12 feet away from your man kind of thing. So that, that's that's what it looks like to me. What else do you have to add? I mean, do you think I'm in the right ballpark here? I think you're in the right ballpark, but still the thing that confuses me is when you look at the personnel. This is a team that should have a pretty solid defensive core. I mean, Clint Capella, he was at least being talked about as a defensive player of the year candidate maybe last year, a couple of years ago. I don't even remember. Once again, time has no meaning. Uh, I thought John <laughs> Collins improved as a weak side defender pretty considerably last year. Like Some of his rim protection numbers were solid. I thought he was more active that way. DeAndre Hunter did look really good. I mean, I think the numbers when he was playing with them, their defense was much improved. Okongwu is like a really flexible defender that he can come in and play multiple positions. So like that's a core right there of rotating forwards and centers that, you know, you look at that roster and you're like, I, I feel like they should be able to come up with something. And I think the Trey Young numbers are really interesting. I'm not going to completely blame the defense on Trey Young. I don't think a singular point guard, uh, while he does have some of his lapses, he has quite a few lapses, actually. Uh, I, I think that does contribute a lot to their defense, but it's like a 10-point swing on defense when he's on the court and, and off the court, especially with paired with Capella. So, you know, I think Trey Young is part of it, but also like you were talking about, there are some plays with like pick and roll coverages where uh, there's a screen, two go to the ball, no one helps off into the paint, and it's just a wide open lob, and that sort of play yeah. happened maybe twice in the first half against the Heat. Yeah, I mean, it, I love scouting against specific teams. Golden State, Miami, teams that put you in a lot of movement, a lot of motion. The Hornets have some cool X's and O's with Borrego. And sometimes you take certain defenses and you put them in that environment and it just puts a spotlight on all their warts. Um, did the Hawks win that game still, by the way? Their offense is so good. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's the thing is, relatively speaking, relatively speaking, their offense is almost like a full point better than, than they were last year. So, like, yeah. when you look at that, they're humming, but they're, like, five and a half points worse than league average on defense, which is, I don't know what percentile that is, but that's really low and really, really bad. 
It's 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 funny because when we were um, talking about you know discussing this on the show this week, the you asked me a long time ago um, on the Sense and Scalability podcast what are some of my biggest misses in player evaluation or projections or things like that. And there's been plenty. They they inform this kind of thinking pattern. But interestingly enough, that day, the first one I thought of was Grayson Allen. Because when he was drafted, I was like, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. First round draft pick. Grayson Allen is not an NBA player. What is happening? Like, he's a solid college, four-year college player. But it was hard to see how he was going to have elite shooting, elite physicality, um, kind of undersized-ish, if you will. And yet, I think I've been proven pretty wrong about that. I think he is an NBA player. But of course, in the last few days, what was it? The Friday night game against Chicago. He, uh, of course, has entered the entered the spotlight for some of his old antics, basically. When he was at Duke, he had a number of controversies including, I think, at least four tripping incidents that I know of. And in this case, with Caruso, uh, Caruso, unfortunately, takes a terrible fall. He's injured again, broken wrist, out, we think, at least six to eight weeks. Um, Grayson Allen was ejected from the game. And, Cody, the thing we – can't, we can't get stuck on this because I'm going to get too fired up. But the thing I can't understand is – how divisive this issue is. There's apparently an entire cohort of people I see uh, who are, and you're a Bucks fan, and you, you, you also, I think, are confused by this. Like, people are like, no, that wasn't a dirty play. All right, everyone, everyone, right now, I want you to stare <laughs> off. I, I, look me in the eye. Look me in the eye. And if you can't, you can't see me because it's a podcast, close your eyes and picture me. I am a Bucks fan. I'm a huge Bucks fan. I'm a rabid Bucks fan. I wrote an article talking about how great Grace Nailed is going to be for this team, and I've been one of his biggest supporters this year. That play was downright dirty. That was disgusting. And I'm not talking as much intentionality-wise. I'm not even saying Grace Nailed was, like, charging in there, like, I'm going to rip Caruso to the floor and break his wrist. But, like, the movement he had with hitting him initially and then, like, the pulling downward motion... Man, I, I don't, I don't know how you can see that and not think that that was dirty. That was, that was, that was pretty bad. That was a really bad play. Yeah, I think the the key thing for me is just the pulling down motion, and the there is a there is a a similar play that happened with Talon Horton Tucker in the last game, I think, with the Lakers, where he made a play on Jalen Suggs. Was that was that game recently? Now I can't remember anymore. I just saw that this this clip has resurfaced. Have you seen this contest with Horton Tucker going up against Suggs and Suggs takes a horrible fall at the rim? No, I actually don't know what you're talking about. Oh, okay, so I've seen people reference this play as a similar play, and I actually think that's a perfect example of what's so different about the Grayson Allen play, which is the, basically the sole reason I think it's dirty. Horton uh, Horton Tucker when he goes to contest the ball. You see his arms, they go after the ball, and there's some contact up top. And that's kind of what throws off Suggs' balance, all that up top contact. You know, you're up in the air, your, your sort of balance is very delicate. But Horton Tucker continues to go by, their hands graze each other kind of thing. With Allen, he hooks him. He hooks his arm. You can see his biceps fire up and bend and pull. And that leads to the twist. And Caruso, credit to that man's nervous system, because he was going to land okay until he got, like, super hooked. And you can see his, his hip bend and his right leg go down to plant underneath him. But he got hooked so hard that it took, his, it took that leg out from underneath him and he landed on the wrist and the hip at the same time. That's the reason why it's dirty to me. You don't go block a shot by trying to pull someone's arms, you know, really, really hard and twist them in the air. That's what you do when you're like, this guy's not getting a shot off. I'm taking him out. So people will yell at us probably, but I just, I think that's worth stating is that the reason the play is dirty, I think, yes, you have the swing at the end, which adds to the problem, but pulling the arms down at the elbow of another player, that's not a basketball play. Especially when it was after the initial contact. Like, he hits him. I think I have my angle right. I think he hits him with his left side. And then after that initial contact, that our right arm just comes swinging in and he grabs him. And it's really too bad. We, we really did prepare this segment to say some nice things about Grayson Allen. And I think I even messaged <laughs> last night. I'm like, I don't know if we should say nice things about Grayson Allen today. 
Well, I was wrong about him as a player. He's an NBA player. Um, let's 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 move on to something more positive. Joel Embiid. My word, how good is this guy? First of all, he's playing great overall. Uh, the defense, I think, is still there. We've talked about how good Philadelphia is with him in the game versus without. The man's scoring is Cody. What are his scoring numbers right now? He is he is incredible putting yeah, the ball I, in the basket. Last I checked, this maybe a day ago, maybe a couple days ago, but he's scoring like thirty two and a half points per seventy five on plus five efficiency, which for a big man in twenty twenty one, oh my goodness! So I think. That Joel Embiid right now, there are maybe a couple other players in history that meet this kind of functional archetype, if you will. Stylistically, they're different. But functionally, this to me is young Wilt Chamberlain. That's what we're seeing. And if you look at Wilt's peak in 1962 and 1963, just from a scoring perspective, the famous 1962 season where he averaged 50 points a game... Now, of course, he's playing 48 minutes a night back then and just stayed in the game the whole time. But estimates of his per-possession scoring and his efficiency relative to the league are almost identical to what we're seeing with Embiid right now. He was about 33, 34 points per 75 adjusted for inflation. And again, like plus 5, plus 6% true shooting. That's exactly where Embiid has been in the last two seasons. And one thing that I really wanted to appreciate we were we were bouncing around some footage on him his his arsenal of his moves it just continues to develop every year he always had skill and he was a battering ram but he just keeps putting polish on the same thing he puts polish on the three-pointer he puts polish on the mid-range he puts polish on his handle he puts polish on his fadeaway I, I mean Cody stop me before I before I go full-blown scouting report here I mean how good is his scoring no, I'm going to stop you so I can start talking about him a little bit. I don't know if we've functionally ever seen a big man with this sort of skill set. I mean, we've seen we've seen big men that can shoot all of the court. You can point to, like, Dirk and whoever else. You can talk to, like, back-to-basket game with uh, Akeem Olajuwon or even McHale. But the way that the way that Embiid can do all this with, like, his face-up and isolation game, even bringing the ball up in, like, semi-transition and just being like, all right, I'm going to take this guy off the dribble, his, his like, 15, 14-foot pull-up off of like this little hesitation dribble. I've never seen anybody with this size being able to do something like this. And I know we've always talked about Embiid's shooting. I mean, it was always like the the joke with like the TNT crew. It's like, oh, they're always talking about Embiid not taking a bunch of threes because it's it's not what big men are supposed to do. Well, Embiid like progressed to another level here. And he's like, you know what? Actually, maybe people like Chris Paul have the right idea here. Maybe if I'm able to like pull up and just not be bothered by any sort of contest, that's going to make my drives even more dangerous and I think that's the main thing that he's added to his game that I've 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 never seen him be as smooth with before is that like 10 to 16 maybe even out to like 18 foot pull-up mid-range jumper yeah and his his shooting numbers right now are just fantastic 38 percent from three over the last two seasons uh 84 percent from the free throw line and to your point that outside 10 feet that's 47 percent uh, Jokic in the last couple seasons since the since the bubble shut down, I know off the top of my head between between ten and twenty feet, he's around forty eight percent. Your all time greats, your Durant, your Dirks, they can hit fifty percent. So you're you're humming if you're shooting forty seven percent in the heart of that mid range area, and you combine that with his three point shooting. And to your point, Cody, I love the way he's getting into it. This sort of quote unquote hang dribble move where where you just pause a little bit, you hesitate like you're gonna drive, and instead of putting it back on the floor, you flow right into the pull-up jumper. He loves that around the foul line area. You know, little little hezzy, pick it up, kick the leg out, that little move where he floats his right leg out underneath him. It's it, smooth. It's it's really smooth. It's soft. The the touch is fantastic. It's going in softly. Um he can, he can make those over the best shot blockers in the league. And then you add the other stuff. I mean, you mentioned the Hakeem reference, that little fadeaway. He's got, he goes over either shoulder, but he likes to go over that right shoulder. That kind of reminds me of Hakeem. And I want to credit him for the way his body's working. This is someone who we're always concerned about longevity with injuries. We're always concerned about in-season durability or whether he's going to break down. But... The way he looks right now, his burst, 
and his agility and his footwork. Uh, it's it's incredibly impressive from an athletic standpoint. And then you marry that with the ball skills and the shooting. Um, think about him coming down the court in transition and kind of like Euro, Euro striding around and scooping in a bucket. Um, yeah, it's it's just been great. So the thing about that play, that I think you're specifically referencing a play against the Magic. There's this play, he gets the rebound, he brings it down in kind of transition, and he like right when he gets to the three-point line, he just puts the bursts on and takes off. And when he lets go of his layup, his body's almost at like, he's like sideways in the air. Like if any of you remember, this reminds me of this this layup that Tony Parker took in like the 2007 finals against the Cavs. And it's it's obviously much more twisty than this. And he was kind of under the basket. But like the way that he was able to let go and be like completely t- contorted. Embiid's like 100 pounds more than Tony Parker, like if not more. I've, I've never seen someone move like that. And you reference like Jokic. Jokic doesn't even flow into jumpers this smoothly. Jokic kind of has this set shot catapulting type of jumper. Embiid's jumper looks like the fluidity of somebody that's a foot shorter than him. It, it, it And when we're talking about defending him in isolation, I, I don't know what you're supposed to do. Because if you do, if you are like one of a few people that can contest his shot or quick enough to stay in front of, in front of him, he turns around and backs you down and nobody is stronger than him in the post. Uh, if you do get your hand in there for a contest, he's really good at, at I, I don't know what you would call it, but when you have your hand, get your hand caught in the cookie jar and he jumps up and draws that contact, kind of like a Kevin Durant or Chris Paul would do. Um, I, man, I don't know. He's been a marvel to watch, especially scoring wise this season. Yeah, and and you know yeah, you have the rip through on free throws that you mentioned. You also just have his power, and the man is like a battering ram. Um, I believe free throw attempts per one hundred right now. The last two seasons are around sixteen free throw attempts every one hundred possessions. Just to bring it back to Wilt, we had you know, mentioned Wilt a second ago. He was at eleven or twelve back in the 62 season no comparisons that's not apples to apples the officiating and all that is different but just in terms of the function Cody of how difficult it is to contain that the fact that uh, Jojo's also an 84 percent free throw shooter where a lot of guys who draw fouls like this whether it's Wilt or Shaq a lot of the historical kind of battering rams don't shoot 85 percent from the line um so you add in the power. There was there was one play I loved reviewing this where they're playing the Rockets and Embiid's the role man because, you know, all this stuff we're talking about, skill from the top, pull-up jumpers, um, stuff in transition, his post game. But then you put a guy like this off the ball. He's not the best role man in the league, but he's still so difficult in those actions because of his skill and his size. And the Rockets wanted to switch, but... He, the the guard the second a guard gets on him he immediately starts yelling help 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 and it's just way too late and it's over and you know just like Jokic takes advantage of mismatches I mean Embiid I feel like bullies about 99% of the league regardless of what position they play and that's how you end up with this like elite I you know I don't know where I'd put this as a scoring peak all time but it's it's really really good it is really good, and I think that Rockets player talking about might be Jalen Green that he gets on, and there's just nothing uh, yeah, he can yeah. do. He just kind of like turns a shoulder, shoulder in a drop step and just dunks, and it's just like it looks like he's playing against an eighth grader in that play. Exactly. And when yeah. we're talking about Wilt, too, something I want to bring up with that is I think this is from one of your, your backpicks profiles for Wilt. Wilt wasn't as physical as Embiid was establishing deep post position. I mean, Embiid looks more like Shaq in that respect, where in the early offense, he just runs down there, and he's like, I'm going to establish myself three feet in front of the basket, and there is nothing you can do to stop me from doing this. And that's that's how we can get a lot of those really close-up opportunities like that. Is when he seals his man, there's no one in the league that can really do anything. I think ESPN Stats and Info had it um, I, maybe today. I saw, I think Embiid has had 12 straight 30-point road games joining George Gervin, Michael Jordan, Tracy McGrady and James Harden, I believe, is the only players to do that. And and like you're you're in score, scoring royalty there. Like especially when you think of the regular season. If we leave the postseason aside, that that is close to a Mount Rushmore collection of like just regular season bucket getters historically. And and you alluded to it. It's relatively rare to have this from the center position. And the guys like 
you know, seven feet, 200, who knows what he weighs. He's a very, very large man. And to move and have the skill the way he does, uh, it, it's astounding. It really is. I, I, he, he might be 300 pounds. I'm not really sure. I can't gauge any of these things. But I, I want to ask you about another player. Not talking about passing at all. Not talking about the other uh, facets of offense. But when you're talking about all-time scoring, I feel like I remember Jokic's numbers maybe even being more impressive. Do you think Embiid's a better scorer than even Jokic right now? Wow, this is a tough question. Um, I think these... Embiid's numbers, the way they are, what would we just say, like 32, 33, plus 6? Those A, those are historically awesome numbers. B, what's crazy is, I think you made this point, I'm not sure you can definitively say he's one of the three best scorers in the league. You could make an argument he's the best scorer in the league, but I think there are at least three other guys up in that conversation, right? Jokic being one of them, Durant, and then who's the fourth one? Maybe... Would you count Giannis or Curry? Yeah, yeah. Well, Curry's Curry's shooting slump has, mm. I think, dropped him out of that. Maybe maybe we'll come back and talk about Curry's Curry's shooting slump a little later in the show. But um, Giannis, I called Giannis the modern Shaq a couple years ago, just because it used to be that power rugged game, and now it's space and length. And Giannis is so strong for his build. I think I would put him in that conversation. He just has a track record of being a monster scorer in the regular season and Jokic is what are Jokic's numbers they're like 29 plus 9 or something yeah Ben this is a joke I just looked it up he's scoring 29 per 75 possessions with a plus 9.8 true shooting percentage Embiid was a plus 5 Giannis is like a 31 and a half plus 5 Jokic is a plus 9.8 I I'm Cackling. This is this is why we have YouTube segments so you can see me cackling in delight. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I I this is where I I think in the last few years doing more work on scoring, you really have to get granular and think about the trade offs of what the different guys provide. What's crazy about just keeping with Jokic as a scorer and Embiid as a scorer is right now they are both so deadly from three and the mid range and in the post, and with mismatches, and they can kind of do it as a role man, um, and they can offensive rebound, so if you switch or downstream into possession, they can punish you that way. Yeah, I, it's... Uh, take take your pick. I'm not going to decide that today. Yeah, I, I don't remember who the author was, and I feel terrible not remembering this, but there was a 2009 New York Times article that was mostly about Shane Battier and really talking about analytics and whatnot i this is terrible i cite this article all the time i can't think of the name of it My, michael lewis yes that's exactly i knew you yeah. know it off the top of your head but there's this anecdote in there that shane battier is talking about and he's talking about all of these players that he's defending he's like oh if you force kobe going to the right he's a little less inefficient iverson likes to go to the left but he goes to the right a lot more i don't remember exactly what it is and they're like is there anyone that doesn't have any weaknesses and he's like, yeah, Manu Ginobili. There is no way to guard Manu Ginobili that is better than any other way. And I think about that watching somebody like Embiid. I'm like, as a defense, I, I don't know what I want him to do. I mean, pa- make him pass, I guess, is the option. But if it's like Embiid is going to shoot this possession, what should we force him to do? I don't know. I guess shoot a three, but he's shooting like 38%. I, I don't know. Yeah. I, of course, that's the big difference between him and Jokic as offensive players is Jokic is passing unlocks levels and levels beyond what just your scoring can unlock by itself. And then, of course, the trade-off. Embiid, uh, we don't have to get into it today, but I do think his passing has ticked up a little bit this year. There's some specific post reads when he gets doubled that I'm seeing him hit that he hasn't hit in the past. But one of the trade-offs of being this good at scoring, we see it with just about every great historical scorer from Michael Jordan to LeBron James to Kobe Bryant, you take a lot of double-team shots, and it's not obvious all the time if you should be passing out of all of them, even though your teammates are open. It's like when Seth Curry's open for three, you really want to—you don't want to miss those passes, and he does sometimes. But when it's you know Niang spotting up for three, and you're Embiid, and you're like eighty percent of the way through your move, and you got three guys on you, but you're seven feet from the hoop, I don't know. That might be like a fifty-five percent shot. That might be better than trying to kick it to a 33 or 35% three-point shooter. So, yeah. Um, by the way, you mentioned Ginobili. Uh, 
I mean, we, should we just have a Ginobili hour today? Wow. <laughs> maybe maybe that can be queued up after our Jalen Brunson hour. Just like yeah. the Jalen Brunson Manu Ginobili love fest. Well, I'm just going to give you one anecdote. I was covering the Lakers in 2009, and that was my first time in NBA locker rooms. And I made it a point to constantly ask players who are available in the pregame who their hardest cover was in the league. And you got a smattering of names. The number one name was Manu Ginobili. Wow. Yeah. Did, do you do you have like reasons that people gave? Like, what were some of the things that people were like? This is why he's terrible to guard. I didn't have that level of questioning yet, Cody. <laughs> You're like, all right, I got Manu Ginobili. That's good enough. I, I was will like, cite I can't, this in a podcast 10 years can't from now. can't believe it. Manu Ginobili, yeah. I'm saving that for 13 years later. I, I think it makes sense, though. I mean, if you now we're just on Manu Ginobili hour. You go back and watch this guy. Like, I, It's unbelievable. Like, left to right crossover, right to left crossover, no look, one-handed dish off like a bouncing rebound. It, the man had everything in his pocket. Yeah. We got to move on because I, I got to at some point I got to get to a Ginobili video. And um, if we if we try to turn it into a podcast, I mean, we'll be here all day. We'll Absolutely. be here all day talking about this guy, which is fine. Um, but let's do we have anything more to say about Embiid before we move along? Can I ask you another question about his passing? Actually. OK, we can stay on his passing for a little bit longer. Who do you think the best passer on the 76ers is? Is that a trick question? I don't think it okay. is. Okay, I think Doc Rivers. <laughs> <laughs> Let's. Uh, okay, that's good. Fair had, enough. We had to seek, sneak some more '80s basketball in there. Um, you mentioned Curry. Let's let's come back to that. I am incredibly excited about his shooting slump. Excited? Excited? I'm, I'm 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 I can't keep it in. I'm ecstatic. Okay. Did you know why? You you need to say more. You need to say more now. I mean, it's probably surprising to hear, but I have wanted to know for a long time what it would look like if you had a player like Curry in terms of movement off the ball and gravity and the way he extends and bends defenses. And at this point in time, frankly, it feels like the league, I imagine each team before they play the Warriors has a little special Curry book of rules that how you know don't ever leave them open don't ever switch off them if you're in transition you won't get benched if you give up an open layup all, all these things and so the experiment that i'm loving right now is for the last couple months curry's shooting his actual ability to convert on his own opportunities when he shoots has gone down but how much has that impacted his value with the league still playing him the exact same way. That, that's what I'm excited about. And what have you found looking into this? Like Now that we actually have this controlled experiment, and to put some numbers on this, I, I found it laughable at the time, but when Curry was approaching uh, breaking the all-time three-point record, it was like right before the Portland game, and Curry was like floating out like, oh, what if he breaks it tonight? What if Curry hits 14 threes? It's like, all right, this is clearly not going to turn out well. We know how all these movies turn out when you say something like that. But since that game, it's been like a 19-game sample. Curry's shooting 34 percent on the threes 34 percent on threes and his overall shooting his true shooting percentage his relative true shooting percentage has dipped below league average he's shooting like 0.3 percentage points worse than league average for these 19 games and so based on based on this sort of uh in-season experiment that we've got going on what, what do you what do you think the case is is how, how is this affecting defenses how is this affecting their offense well this is what's so fascinating um I actually pulled the numbers a couple games before because his his overall true shooting is even worse. If you go back to December 2nd, that's when this sort of overall shooting slump, I think, gets him his lowest numbers. And that's about half the season so far. So uh, what is that? A quarter a quarter of the season with normal-ish Curry shooting. It was at 63% before this through the beginning of December. And then after December 2nd, He's at 55% true shooting. League, league average true shooting right now, Cody, is almost 56%. And Steph Curry is at 55%. So his scoring, the, the, the number of shots that he's taking isn't drastically different. So what that means is his scoring goes from 29 points per 75 down to 26 points per 75. And he goes from like 
plus six or so relative to the league, um, plus seven relative to the league, down to league average or right below league average. Three-point shooting before that was 42%, by the way. Uh, This is what's crazy. Now, we know plus-minus stats are noisy. I am not looking at this and saying his value didn't change at all. I don't think that's true. But what I do think is that so much of his value comes from warping the defense and making life easier for his teammates in a way that we've literally never seen on a basketball court, probably at any level. Um, I mean, when he was at Davidson, there's an incredible video by our friend Jordan Sperber on YouTube, Hoops Vision 68 channel, about a game at Davidson where the opposing coach double-teamed him the entire game, regardless of whether he had the ball or not. If you haven't seen that, go check it out. And I think that sort of embodies so much of Curry's value. Now, if he couldn't shoot at all, that would be fine. But here what we're seeing is he's still a 26-point kind of scorer. He still shoots 36. You had it at 34 after that December 8th game. So he's still a decent shooter when you account for the volume of threes he's taking. And here's the reveal. Before all this happened, Golden State had a 117 offensive rating with him on the court, and they were plus 18 per 100 possessions. And then when he went off the court, they had a 106 offensive rating, and they were plus two. So that change, that net difference with him on the court versus off the court was about plus 16. That's before the slump. Since the slump, the Warriors, obviously Draymond Green has missed time. There's been other stuff that's taken place. Since the slump, they are plus 10 with Curry on the court with a 114 offensive rating. So the offensive rating has gone from 117 down to 114. And then they are minus 6 with him on the bench with a 102 offensive rating. So, Cody, the net change is still plus 16. It's the exact same kind of statistical impact. And the offense, which was 11 points better with Curry in the first half of the, or the first quarter of the season, is now 11 and a half points better with him in the second half of the season. Again, there's some noise there, but to me, this reflects just how much, as long as defenses are going to play him like this, the other stuff is the thing driving so much of his value versus making a few extra shots every 100 possessions. Yeah, I'm glad you shouted out to that early college game. I think it was back in 2008. It was a matchup with Loyola, I think, and and Davidson still won by 30 points, holding Curry to like three shots and zero points, like you said, with, with double-teaming him in the corner the entire time. And that was uh, the harbinger of what was to come for Steph Curry. And these numbers that you're throwing out there, they're... It's one of those when you like think about it and you're like, yeah, of course, Steph Curry's movement and the way he like he himself can move the ball and he moves his body. Of course, that wouldn't affect their offense. But when you actually think about the fact that his efficiency has dropped, even though I, I must say it's not like this was his most efficient scoring season ever anyway. But when you right. see that drop in efficiency, it's still it's mind boggling to be like from this sample, it did not matter in terms of net swing with him being on the court. Yes, the offensive rating dropped out in a couple of points, so maybe you could make the argument that that net rating swing would have been even better had he been shooting closer to what we know Steph Curry to be. But still, that shift is just... It, it, it shows you, you know, when a player goes into a slump, other teams aren't going to be like, all right, this is great. Now we're going to leave Steph Curry wide open on a couple couple of these plays. We can help off in the paint. No, he's still Steph Curry. They still got to chase him around. They still got to Matthew Dellavedova him and, and touch him every <laughs> second that he's running around the court. Yeah, no, I think I think you nailed it perfectly. And in fact, a couple years ago, uh, for a Nylon Calculus article I wrote when I was talking about the interaction between scoring and playmaking and how if you pass too much, you can't really expect to break down the defense constantly. And if you score too much, you're not taking advantage of the defense reacting to your scoring. And it turned out that when you look at like a regression analysis when you try to look at a large sample and say on average what what happens if you're four percent lower in true shooting or something what happens if you're russell westbrook and you have this incredible rim pressure and you're a dynamo and you get a lot of assists and you score a lot but you take a bunch of extra shots and your efficiency is like i don't know three percentage points worse than the league instead of being three percentage points better than the league and it turns out that at least in that study and hand tracking it, which was a, um, the driver of the study, 
it seems to make almost no difference. In other words, defenses can't perceive or don't care about a few extra makes or misses here and there up to a point when it comes to reacting to your scoring pressure. They almost have to decide, like you see in the playoffs or like you see sticking with Westbrook at this point in his career with Los Angeles this year, they almost have to preemptively decide, we don't need to worry about that guy in the corner or we don't need to rush doubles and we don't need to flood the paint. And once they preemptively decide that, again, that is the bigger driver versus a couple percentage points in scoring. Now, I think if defenses start playing Curry differently and he never makes shots again, that's a very different conversation. And to your point, they, you know, the offense went down a little bit. Maybe they could have been better anyway. I do think he loses value by missing some of these open shots that he normally makes. But it's an incredible reminder, I think, that the even a stat like gravity. I've heard people say gravity is a defensive stat because it's about the choice defenses are making. And often these are premeditated choices. And, and no one is going, huh, you know, Curry's in a slump. Maybe we shouldn't guard him anymore. Yeah, and I think it also just shows the immense skill set that Curry has beyond his shooting. We always cite his, his shooting numbers, but his shooting numbers, while the three-point percentage shooting numbers are about his three-point percentage shooting, the true shooting percentage aspect of it, the way that he helps the offense hum, isn't just about his shooting. He's also great at attacking, you know, off the catch, getting in there, driving, passing it, and then relocating again for another sort of attack. So this is just one aspect of Curry's game where he's slumping in. But I don't necessarily know. I can't definitively say like, oh yeah, his dribbling, his penetration, his his finishing. I didn't look at some of those numbers, but uh, I can't definitively say that those are slumping. It's just one part of his offensive arsenal that has been down a little bit. And I don't think it's enough to globally impact the rest of what he brings to the table offensively. It's it's not like he's out there being, uh, you know, Jason Capono as a, as a three-point shooter who like he gets the ball and, and that's that's it. Like there's going to be no other secondary attack off that. Yeah, I, I actually think this is something that is throwing um, voters, MVP voters, or people who kind of power rank the top players in the league. The First of all, I think Curry's having his best passing season in a long time. I think he's having the best defensive season of his career. I think the defensive effort probably has something to do with the legs and the shooting slump and things like that. But holistically, I think it throws people where they're like, well, I can't credit you if you're missing all your shots which is only because he set the bar so high in the first place, right? He's still shooting 36% on like 97 threes a game. He's still just running around and scrambling the defense, and defenses are responding. So I certainly don't think it's his peak season. I think it's very easy to argue that last season was better, especially with the heater that he won on in the second half of the season. But I do think I've seen people who like don't even have him in the top five in MVP anymore, and I think that's missing the boat entirely because Golden State – is still an elite team. Um, the first half of the season still counts. And it's really just fascinating. You, you mentioned like driving and collapsing defenses and teammate shooting. Before the slump, the Warriors shot 39% from three, just under 39% from three. After that date, we looked at 12-2. They shoot just under 38%. Is all of that from Curry missing more shots? It could be. I haven't run the numbers. But in other words... If his teammates are still getting open threes and they're still in a long sample knocking them down in the same way, then that's a ton of value that he's providing for the other four guys versus just himself. Same thing with rim assists. Golden State's overall assists have gone down as a team, but their rim assists have gone up. So there are indicators that this this is still an incredibly positive impact player and style of play, even when you chip away at the efficiency of the three-point shooting. And I think looking, I think it's really hard to separate. You know, there's a lot of variables that are going on, especially with the Warriors right now. Neither of these encompass that entire 19-20 game stretch or anything like that. But also in that time, we have Draymond Green missing a chunk of time as yep. pro- probably, the, not even probably, their best facilitator, their best passer. But also in that time, we have Clay Thompson coming back and trying to integrate himself into their offense mm. as well as he can. So do you think... How much of an impact do you think those two variables have on any of these numbers and conversations we're having about the Warriors? Do we have the numbers handy for um, where we are with with Clay on his return? He's been, what, seven games back? I think so. Yeah, last I checked it was seven, because I don't think he played in their last game. I think, I think, it's, I think they're three and four. Does that sound right? 
I think we have the numbers somewhere. Yeah. I am checking. Here we go. They're three and four. He came back since January 21st with an offensive rating of 102 and a defensive rating of 105. Um, I, I don't think that's unexpected for a player like that to come back in to a kind of a fairly well-oiled machine, displace the other kind of key offensive scorer in the starting lineup, if you will. I mean, Wiggins is right there, but it's a different role than the way Poole plays. So Poole goes to the bench, Clay's out there. And also, I don't know if you've noticed, but Clay is taking about 200 shots every minute he's on the court. His, uh, his, yeah, he is making his, up for lost time. He, yeah, he is, he is trying to get it all back, 37-point quarter in one shot kind of clay. And uh, I, I think the jumper looks, uh, it's, you know, I'm encouraged by what I see physically, but I do think the jumper looks a touch different. It's actually faster than it was before his injuries back. I, I was going back and looking at pre, pre-2020, pre-2019 clay clips. And I don't know if you've seen anything different in the jumper, but that's one thing that jumps out to me is he used to be like closer to two thirds of a second. Once he tapped that right toe, he likes to tap a right toe and then bring it up and fire. And, uh, and now he's like half a second under half a second on some of these releases, which gets into the quicker releases in the league. And I just wonder, I don't, I think his nervous system's too good to ever not be a great shooter, but I wonder if he just, needs to get his game legs a little bit more, slow down almost, and just start getting comfortable again launching. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if that was part of it. First of all, I got to apologize. When we were trying to talk about the statistics, I was just like trying to check it out. And I, we literally have the numbers sitting in front of us in a in an outline. But I like second guessed myself. I'm like, wait, did I put the right numbers down? And Ben was over here trying to be like, just say the numbers. No one knew that. No one knew that until you mentioned it right now. That yeah, was but- uh, I'm a behind the curtain kind of guy, you know. I like I like it all. You to like to you like to break the fourth wall, right in the middle of the scene. Oh, absolutely. That's uh, the transgressive podcaster. That's how I like to be known. It's just taking it to a no, new level. It, here's the thing: we talked about this with Curry. The interesting thing with Clay is he's in a terrible. Like, I don't even want to say slump. I'm not surprised by this. He's been out of the game a long time. Shooting in practice is a lot different than shooting in a game. What he's shooting like 26% on 5.2 catch and shoot threes right now. It's terrible. But teams are still defending him like he's the clay of old. Like they're still tight on him. He's still moving around like we're used to seeing him move on offense. And I think you can actually see that with the performance, very small sample size, but with the performance of some of his teammates. I mean, when Curry is sharing the court with Clay right now, Curry's shoot, scoring about 21 per 75, and he's shooting plus 11 and a half true shooting. Mm. This, this is the guy that we just said was slightly below league average in general. Uh, Andrew Wiggins scoring about 19 per 75 on plus 14 percent efficiency. So even though, again, like Curry, even though the numbers themselves and how he converts plays isn't what we're used to, he's still greasing the wheels of this juggernaut of an offense by opening up the court so much more for for his teammates. Yeah, I, I think it, I think I see mostly encouraging signs. You know. Uh, I'm not surprised that there are bumps in the road when you integrate them. Um, I think the bigger thing for me going forward with Golden State is can Curry kind of get a rhythm, get his legs back? Uh, if not, will teams adjust? Can Clay also get a rhythm and get his legs back? I mean, I, to me, he's slightly ahead of the timeline already just by being back before the All-Star break. And that's going to give him a number of months to kind of play himself you know we can't expect him to be a hundred percent of where he was he's also a couple years older but to your point these shots start falling and I think they will and he's making 35 or 40 percent of these instead of 25 percent I, I I think you're right back in that situation with Golden State where they're they're not only extremely dangerous but man if you can get basically you just need Wiggins or Jordan Poole not to go full Mo Williams in the playoffs just just avoid the full Mo Williams in the play. I'm sorry, Mo. I'm a, bit, I'm a, I'm a fan of Mo, but are, are we talking like Cavaliers Mo Williams? Like Cavaliers Mo Williams, yeah. 2009 Mo Williams. Yeah, All, All Star yeah. Mo Williams. All Star Mo. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's just the idea that both with Wiggins and Poole, if you haven't been there and you're not like a chiseled playoff veteran and you're a key part of a team and you get to the playoffs 
and all of a sudden you're no longer like, oh, this guy, I thought this guy was a top 25 player in the regular season, that kind of thing. And you're really struggling out there. I mean, I think one encouraging thing for Golden State on that exact front is that Wiggins, to me, looks like the idealized, perfect upgrade compared to the old Harrison Barnes role. And of course, Harrison Barnes um, infamously struggled in the, in the 16 finals against the Cavs, knocking down those threes that you're going to get when you play with these guys on the court. So any other thoughts on this, uh, Cody? Because I think we've gone over our Golden State quota for the week. Yeah, pro- pro- I don't know. I, don't, I think the Golden State fans think we should probably make every episode about Golden State. <laughs> was that too harsh? Who know? Who cares? Uh, the, the one last thing I want to say about Clay, though, is uh, the, the one thing that makes me excited about seeing him come back is he, do- he almost looks a little bit more explosive than I remember before. Maybe that's, that's an aspect of being, you know, not playing an NBA game for a couple of years, making sure you're not coming back till you're like fully ready. But I feel like his drives are, uh, have a little bit more moxie than I'm used to seeing from him. And I think that's an encouraging sign. And if he can keep that up and his three-point numbers and his just shooting numbers in general seem to uh, start progressing, I think uh, we're going to see pretty close to Clay of old uh, before the end of the season. Yeah, I know a lot of Warriors fans are sounding the alarm, but um, I'm, I haven't sold a single piece of stock. I still think it looks pretty good. And it's going to take a while before I think there are genuine causes of concern as we've discussed today i think a lot still going very well with them um, if you want to support this show head on over to patreon.com slash thinking basketball this weekend we've got our monthly live q a coming up that's always fun never know what questions or topics will be thrown my way at the last moment you know compare 19 historical players at once off the top of my head things like that um we can also get a daily stats leaderboard that updates with our proprietary numbers some of what we discuss on podcasts like we did today and a ton of others patreon.com slash thinking basketball otherwise that is it for me for cody hodek uh i appreciate you listening all the way to the end and as always of course i hope you're having a great day